Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Home, sweet home, so close yet so far. With the Chinese Lunar New Year just around the corner, hundreds of millions of Chinese are toiling to join their families for celebrations. The Spring Festival Travel Rush, or Chunyun, is the largest annual migration on Earth, and this year particularly so. According to China's transport authorities, a record 9 billion trips are anticipated during the period, which lasts some four days. That's the equivalent of every Chinese traveling six times. And there are a lot of Chinese already. But this year, freak weather events in central China have literally left people out in the cold. And social media is rife with footage of stranded traffic and the Herculean effort to get them back on track. So what makes this year's travel rush particularly phenomenal? How are such emergencies managed in China in the social media age and how does China handle such a mission impossible? I'm pleased to be joined from Bingzhou City of East China's Shandong Province by Professor Ying Haitao, Vice Dean of Antai College of Economics and Management at uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University and from Beijing by Justin Downs, President of uh, Axis Leisure Management and International Leisure and Hospitality Management Company and Consultancy. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. So as I said, nine billion trips expected to be made from January the 26th or end of January till the beginning of March. Uh, Mr. Downs, let me go to you first. Um, why such a huge numbers for this particularly period of time? Well, nine, nine, nine people is, I mean, a billion is a number to most people, let alone a million. If you were to walk around the world as a normal person, nine billion steps would be 106 times or 7 billion steps would be 106 times around the earth that's how many it is and it's only less than one percent of how many people travel during u.s thanksgiving which is the biggest travel period of the u.s as well so unbelievable numbers but i think largely it's because for the past few years of course we've been going through covid and a lot of people still were unable to get back to their hometowns in the previous years so i think the large numbers are really caused by pent-up demand to get home and see their families. Mm -hmm. Especially for the largest holiday, which is extremely important for the Chinese. Um, Professor Ying, you recently, I understand, um, traveled from Shanghai, where you work, to Bingzhou City, where you are, uh, in Shandong province, where your home is, I understand, or your parents' home is. Uh, how was that travel? Was it smooth? And how <coughs> indicative is that of uh, the, the kind of challenges that uh, the travel system is faced with around China? Thank you. I came back to my hometown on the 4th uh, this past Monday. So I first took a high-speed train from Shanghai, where I work, to a nearby city called Dezhou. And then my friend picked me up at the train station. We drive one and a half an hour back to my hometown. Uh, you know, due to the bad weather, uh, my train was delayed uh, by one hour. But other than that, the trip was quite pleasant. Hmm. But uh, around China on social media, we are seeing footages of uh, stranded cars on highways, um, delayed high-speed rails and so on and so forth. Uh, what is your understanding of the disruption, of the scale of disruption that's uh, been um, happening, that's happening in China because of the extreme weather patterns? 
Yes, and you know, I I heard this from the from the news report from the social media. From what what I learned is quite severe. I see many many cars, you know, uh, stuck in the high uh, in the highway. You know, the weather is not very freedom friendly, so uh, people suffered. Um, I think you know uh, this uh, this is a very abnormal uh, extreme event. Um, you know, we don't see this very often uh, in the last few years, yeah. in the last 10 years. Have you wondered why this may be so normal that such, you know, such large scale disruptions have taken place? You know, uh, I'm an environmental economist. So uh, from my understanding, because, you know, we are experiencing, uh, we are experiencing this climate change because the carbon emission, the global uh, greenhouse gas emission keep increasing and climate change is approaching. Mm. So I, I would, I would, well, I would expect in the, in the, in the next few years, we are going to see more and more this extreme Mm-hmm. weather extremely bad All right. and probably they will become normal in the future <laughs> mm. in some sense yeah mr downs how do you look at the fact that out of the nine billion troops we were talking about 7.2 billion that is 80 percent are being made by people who are driving home you know on top of the you know the other means of transportation which were more fashionable or prevalent in the past is that another factor that has compounded the kind of disruptions we are seeing well, I mean, sure. I mean, people are taking their cars because it's convenient. You can, and it's more perhaps more affordable. They can take their time. They can stop and do things along the way. They can bring their luggage. You know, it's it, it'll bring lots of gifts, of course. So people want their cars when they get to a destination as well. So they're not kind of reliant on local transport systems. Mm. So yeah, more and more people are getting in their cars and and moving. And to be honest, unfortunately, whether the weather is good or not people are not generally prepared in long distance travel. They, they don't do it very often. So it, it, it's compounded by the weather, but I think it's also just general lack of practice in this type of travel at this time of year. Mm. And uh, a lot of people doing that at the same time, it could exacerbate this, uh, this problem. How do you look at, Mr. Downs, if you're still with us, how do you look at the kind of responses that have been levy- levied out by the authorities, uh, whether it's the local government or the transport authorities, to um, remedy the kind of disruptions that we're seeing? I think everybody is inclined to give the local authorities a hard time because you know, they should have controlled this, but no one can control mother nature. I mean, it's it's beyond everybody's control. So I think they do an admirable job. They probably erred a lot on the, you know, more overly cautious than perhaps in other countries there would be. But that's also because I think the lack of preparedness and awareness of the drivers themselves needs to have that. I think, you know, I think that the, the, the they're generally prepared for emergency response, but I think the uh, say preventative maintenance and the equipment readiness and this type of stuff to keep things open and moving is is also part of perhaps the future plan is to be better prepared for these types of events. Mm. And, and this is a particular kind of weather we're talking about, sleek, which happens very rarely, unfortunately happened during this particular period of time and happened in central China, which is the kind of uh, um, hub where, you know, a lot of people, a lot of trains, a lot of highways are, are uh, converging. Mr. Downs, how do you look at the particular challenge that's posed there and the kind of uh, um, innovativeness that have been demonstrated by various authorities to try to get rid of the, you know, f- thick frozen layer of ice on top of roads or, you know, the, the public inter- infrastructure? 
Yeah, look, it's uh, other countries deal with this and have been dealing with it for a long, long time. And the population are more used to their preparedness for it. They have the right type of tires. They've learned how to drive. They they know that they've got their sensory awareness about them. The Chinese drivers perhaps haven't had to deal with that so often. And, you know, the, the, the landscape of China is immense, right? It takes a lot of equipment and, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, procedures, whether it's salting the roads or, or, or using other types of, not, not necessarily harmful chemicals, but types of materials to soften the impact of the ice on the road. But at some times it's, it's really unmanageable, the sheer quantity of it. It's almost like a perfect storm, you might say, where it doesn't matter what you do and how well you're prepared. It's just something that takes time to manage and everybody just needs to be patient. Mm -hmm. um, Professor Ng, what is uh, special about the, the response that China has rolled out or the, the, the Chinese authorities have rolled out uh, with uh, similar, in dealing with similar disasters from other countries? If you have any uh, such experiences abroad, do you think there are any ways unique to China how they deal with such an emergency situation? Because we are seeing, for instance, PLA soldiers being mobilized to help clear the roads and so on and so forth. And that's a common practice every time there is a natural disaster or, or uh, uh, emergency uh, of any sort. Yeah, exactly. So um, apparently for this uh, for this time, this uh, this traffic jam, apparently the local government, they are less uh, prepared. They are not prepared for this because this is an extreme event. It's, it's uh, abnormal. But from the response, I, I see quite uh, effective response. I see from what I learned from the social media, you know, government organized those massive snow removal uh, actions, you know, they uh, mobilize uh, the uh, government officials, they, uh, they mobilize the armed policemen and women, right? And, uh, you, you know, also, uh, you know, what I'm quite happy to see is uh, the local residents from nearby villages, they also, you know, self-organize. They either volunteer to give out food and drink for free, or they engage some sort of market behavior. They sell food and, uh, and hot water to, to the people who stuck uh, on the highway. That's quite helpful. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mr. Downs, you just came back from Xinjiang to Beijing and uh, um, by flight, of course. How was that trip and uh, in other routes that are not so much affected by extreme weather, what's the situation there? Oh, it was it was seamless and perfect, actually. I mean, there was beautiful blue skies in Xinjiang and beautiful blue skies here in Beijing. So we had no no disruptions. I was traveling with some people who were going to Wuhan. They had a different story. I'm not sure if they made it back there yet or not. Uh, but the flights were full. It was full of families. Everybody was happy to be going somewhere, uh, mm -hmm. but everything was perfect and on time. Mm -hmm. How do you look at the kind of uh, uh, volume of travelers now that we are one year after the COVID restrictions were lifted? The first year, the first spring festival was, of course, very, very different. And the spring festivals during the COVID time was extremely different. But how do you look at the potential that's being unleashed this time, uh, both within China, Mr. Downs, and also also uh, cross-border, you know, in and out of China. Oh, I think there's there's so much pent-up demand for to get out and see the world. I think people felt kind of locked up, <laughs> literally and figuratively, for for a long time. So there's a pent-up demand to get around and, and experience China. Firstly, of course, I mean, there's people realize that there's so much on their own back doorstep to to get out and see, go on ski holidays, go to the beaches, all of these types of things. But 
now the world is back open to Chinese people. As long as they can get visas and flights, they want to go and they want adventure, they want experiences, they want fun. They just want to get out and forget uh, about these past three, four years. Mm. And Professor Ng, in terms of domestic activity, domestic consumption, do you see this year, despite the disruptions that are uh, seeming to fade away uh, by now, despite the disruptions, do you see uh, pent-up activity and economic activity in, in particular during this Spring Festival rush? Oh, well, um, uh, as you said, you know, the generally speaking, the consumption is, is going down. But during this Spring Festival, you know, the consumption seems to uh, doing pretty good, doing pretty well. And uh, come on, this is the Spring Festival. Everybody wants to go home. And when they go home, uh, if you work in a big city, you are supposed to bring gifts, not only to your parents, but also to your relatives, to your friends. Uh, that's probably another reason why so many people drive cars back to their home, because they have a lot to carry. Well, I certainly hope that they can get home, get the get to the place that they miss all year round in a smooth and uh, efficient manner. Many thanks to my guests, Professor Ying Hai Tao and Justin Downs for sharing with us your insights. And we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, overseas visitors have been deterred by China's cashless payment ecosystem. Now the capital, Beijing, has rolled out demonstration zones to help them start paying like locals upon arrival. How much more work is needed? Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Can foreign visitors and their pocketbooks hit the ground running in China? Being a cashless society has become some sort of a hindrance for China as an international destination. Now, China has been exploring ways to help international visitors navigate the Chinese digital payment ecosystem. And the latest news is that Beijing's two main airports, Capital International and Daxing International, have launched payment services demonstration zones for exactly that. A variety of services and facilities have been offered to make the transition seamless, including additional banking outlets, currency exchange counters and automatic machines which can change foreign bills into renminbi. Now, this initiative gives literal currency to China's recent steps to relax visa policies to boost cross-border exchanges. How much help will it provide to inbound travelers? What more? needs to be done. To explore these important questions, we're joined from Brisbane, Australia by Warwick Powell, adjunct professor at Queensland University of Technology, and from Beijing here in the studio, Professor Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Professor Gong, let's uh, first get an idea of exactly how different is China's payment ecosystem <laughs> and why these steps are needed. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to come to the studio today. Um, I think uh, what China, what's happening here in China is that the society is rapidly becoming a digital society. I mean, it's not, not just about just payment. Practically everything you're doing on, on, on your handset, for example, you, know, you go to Subway, um, you uh, call a taxi, uh, you go to restaurants. I mean, practically everything is done by um, uh, a handset. You, you, you can get around without carrying a wallet, actually, right? And, and this, of course, is a good thing, 
But unfortunately, in my view, uh, from a foreigner's perspective, uh, China's becoming like a digital island, in your view. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great thing, but, you know, it, it's, it's really, you know, as a foreigner coming into China, it, it's getting a little bit intimidating, in my view. I mean, I'm well-versed in Chinese, as you know, right? Um, and a few months ago, I mean, a year ago, actually, during the COVID time, when I arrived in China, it was, a, you know, such an intimidating experience to go through all the things at airport. And I think, and I can't imagine what's going through uh, for a foreigner who doesn't, it was not well versed in, in Chinese language at all. So I think, um, you know, we, we have created this digital island and we need to help foreigners to uh, get used to, uh, mm. to catch up on the learning curve rapidly, as, uh, you know, as, as much as we can. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, the first point is, uh, should be done at the airport. Um, maybe even before that, before they arrive, there got to be some sort of a, like a training thing for people uh, to come into China to get used to, you know, what's happening here in China about yeah. these digital well, things. Yeah, before we unravel um, in more discussion, I have to say that uh, since uh, 2023, since uh, measures, or even in 2022, measures were uh, started, starting to be taken to address that problem, and it's estimated that millions of inbound visitors have used mobile systems System, which uh, incorporate international credit card holders and uh, especially uh, as st statistics show that especially in the last quarter of last year 35 million transactions were made involving uh, foreign visitors in China and the total sum reached a 5 billion yuan of, of course the um, the number could be much bigger mr. professor Powell let me go to you uh, you have traveled to China um, after the COVID restrictions were lifted what have been your personal experience, how difficult, how easy, what else needs to be done? Look, I think um, John's right in that the experience can initially be quite intimidating, but that's because all change processes and new things can be quite intimidating for many people. I think that there has been also a real demographic difference in terms of different age groups who have found the transition to digital payments perhaps a little bit easier um, than others. So in the last 12 months, coming back to China um, now three times, um, I have uh, had the experience of downloading and updating and integrating uh, foreign bank accounts with WeChat Pay. And I must say, I found that a little bit, um, uh, shall I say, clunky. Um, there were some issues with uh, identification, verification and those sorts of things. The Alipay app was very easy to um, uh, download and integrate. And I have downloaded, but I haven't yet properly installed uh, and therefore not yet used the ERMB app. Um, now, in that whole context, I must say I'm also probably part of the demographic who um, is also a little bit old school. And um, <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> and, and, and the backup, and the backup, of course, is uh, is a wad of RMB. And I must say that um, wherever I went, if I was having troubles with any of the digital payments platforms because of phone connectivity or whatever, um, I was able to use RMB to buy uh, subway um, tickets or or taxi fares or whatever. Mm. So. Um, yeah. There are challenges in change processes yeah. and there are a lot of practical issues that need to be addressed but I think that the world 
generally speaking, is ready to make the digitalization leap anyway. Yeah. Well, th this is, again, not just a isolated problem faced by foreign nationals, but also to a lot of uh, Chinese national senior citizens, for instance, the right. digital gap is also quite daunting. Um, Professor Gong, how do you look at this? I mean, um, China seems to be way ahead of the rest of the world. You're talking about island. This could be a highland. You know, we have really gone way ahead of everybody else in terms of digitalization. Um, so are we are we too much ahead? I mean, what's the problem? We look at the gap between us and everywhere, everyone else. What has happened? Is yeah, it a I, good I, thing or a bad thing I, now that we're kind of suffering from it? Well, of course it's a good thing, but you know we have to address the issue of uh, how to help those um, digitally uh, have not, what we call it, right? Uh, I mean, they, they include elderly people, like people like my mom and dad. Actually, my dad is actually pretty advanced in, in doing, uh, playing with the hands of my mom doesn't. Um, but I, 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 just, I mean, there are millions and millions of people in China as well. Um, it, so there is indeed a concept, you know, it, it used to be in the United States called universal service. In other words, um, there are things that, um, uh, that should be provided to uh, everyone, uh, including the elderly, including the, the uh, uh, disadvantaged people. Um, and, and this is, um, you know, I think the government's obligation. Um, it, the, the, fact, I mean, the problem is that pretty much the entire landscape is dominated by these two companies, as we all know it, you know, Tencent and uh, uh, Alibaba. Uh, and I think they have the, it's my view, I mean, they have the obligation to fulfill that um, universal service obligation. In, in other words, you know, they, essentially they have a franchise throughout China, de facto franchise, basically, to provide this thing, um, this whole series of things, a system, to, um, to the country, to a lot of people. And it's a good thing, it's a great thing. Um, but the problem is that they're moving so much ahead without taking care of those sort of boundary conditions, a few million people that are just left behind. And, yeah, or foreign visitors. And, and including foreign visitors as well. And, and this is a national problem. Um, you know, from the company's perspective, they're not gonna go, go out and try to solve, resolve these of issues course. on their own because it's not profitable for them. But the government has the obligation to do that. So I think, you know, I think the government needs to do something to uh, essentially force these two companies to come up with some solutions. Uh, in this case, in the foreigners, I think, you know, they should develop a, a user-friendly app for people who are about to visit China um, as part of maybe the package they're going to give to people mm. when they, you know, get okay. a visa or something, right? So, yeah. so you know, essentially they have the obligation to fulfill this, uh, this commitment to help people. Professor Powell, looking back at, uh, you know, the past few years of uh, rapid development in China's online payment ecosystem, what do you think could be taken away from uh, the experience now that we're seeing, you know, we're way ahead of everybody else and the kind of uh, unforeseen consequence <laughs> of foreigners finding it quite a hindrance, you know, entering China. And you don't want people to, to what? I have to give away so much? I have to do so much? Okay, I'm going to think of somewhere else. Some people are literally thinking that way. So what can be taken away as an experience? I wouldn't call it a lesson, but, you know, a happy headache if we're going to develop um, something similarly in the, in the future. Look, innovation and bringing new things to the world invariably involves a need to continually improve and calibrate what you do in light of experience. And many of the digitalization solutions and the payment platforms that now dominate the Chinese retail landscape have been around actually for more than a decade. Now, 
they've been designed to be very China friendly, if you will, because that's the operating environment from which these innovations emerged. And it makes total sense that the refining of these experiences has principally been focused on addressing the needs of its primary marketplace. But as we move into an era of increasing international tra transport and connectivity, we are going to need to bring our design hats back to the table, if you will, and think about these experiences from the point of view of someone who is not native to this ecosystem. Mm. Somebody who is only going to interact with this ecosystem yeah. on a once-off or a temporary basis. Yeah. So very, very limited time, Lip, but uh, from each of you, what would be one uh, quick solution, if you can think of anything, you know, because now China is trying, right, to, to make up for the, the kind of a fallout. Um, Professor Power, what would you, what would you suggest? I would suggest two things. One is um, uh, outreach uh, in the foreign countries themselves, essentially to have payment systems ambassadors to train and teach people about how to do things. The second thing I would suggest is to actually explore the possibilities of having what are essentially temporary payment cards that can be accessed through the ATMs mm -hmm. where people don't necessarily need to use their mobile phones okay. but can use all right, all right, uh, John. Yeah, very quickly. I think I've already said so. I think the government should uh, impose some compulsory obligations on these two companies to develop something that help foreigners, you know, promote these things for for people who are going to come to China on, on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, just to make things easier for incoming foreigners before they enter China. Yeah. Well, the solution has to be found. Hopefully, uh, soon enough. Many thanks to Warwick Powell and Jiang Gong for sharing with us your insights. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lushin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got The Point. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. <laughs> Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. The mother put the porcelain spoon. The mother drew back and pulled the little girl back. But the mother did not hear the old voice. The mother. Experience the heartwarming story of a mother's love that knows no bounds, titled The Mother, written by Nobel Prize winning author Pearl S. Buck. It's a story of love, sacrifice, and the universalism of motherhood that transcends race and borders, told through an account of an unnamed mother living in rural China in the early 20th century. Get the audiobook right now at radio.cgtn.com or any major podcast platform. Simply search for the Books and Beyond podcast and key in The Mother.